Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... There's a lot of learning about how well it's working, and there's a lot of learning about how much workers value it, and that's causing managers to change their plans gradually over time. Adam Ozemek on the promising but undecided future of remote work. Today's episode is all about remote work, or as it is sometimes called, telework or telecommuting or just working from home. And the one thing we can definitely say, no matter what you call it, is that the trend towards remote work has accelerated a lot during the COVID pandemic. That much is clear in the data, and we'll cover it in today's chat. But what we don't yet know is how much of the trend will last. And if it does last, what kind of consequences will it have on the economy, on society? What might its effects be on things like how we design our homes or even our neighborhoods? What's going to happen to the downtowns of big cities if their offices stay empty? And what will it mean for how people get evaluated and promoted at work? Today's guest is economist Adam Ozemek. Adam has done some of the most detailed and original analysis on remote work, not just chronicling the trend right now, but also looking at how it might conceivably change our lives in the long run. Adam is the chief economist of EIG, the Economic Innovation Group, a think tank, and his own life has been changed by remote work. EIG, for example, is based in Washington, D.C., but Adam works remotely and lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And working remotely has enabled him to also become a local entrepreneur, investing in a few different businesses in Lancaster, including a very cool hybrid bowling alley restaurant, old school video game arcade called Decades. So his observations are based not just in economic analysis, but in real-world experience. Adam and I met up in Lancaster for this chat. Here it is. Adam. Hey, man. Cardiff, thanks for having me on. There's a couple of things I want to do in our chat today. First, I just want to cover the data on the extent to which people starting to work remotely is actually happening. And I want to make a, a, a distinction here. It's not just working from home. It's working remotely. It's working where you choose as opposed to being forced to go into an office. You can work out of a coffee shop, remote working spaces, that kind of thing. But working in a place that is not your place of business is your employer's main office. So I want to establish the trend. And then second, I want to go through all of the different first and even second or third order effects that it could potentially have in the future. Because I find that people's thinking on working remotely often stops a little bit too quickly. In other words, they say, well, it's really hard, for example, to work from home if you know you have kids at home who are staying you know, home from school because their schools are closed or, uh, yeah, I don't know, because we have to like train young people. How are we going to do that remotely? And then they act like that's it. Like that's the end of the conversation, but actually this is quite fluid and things can evolve over time. You know what I mean? Yeah. There is a weird pessimism that people want to take the argument and sort of drive it into a ditch as fast as they can for some reason. Well, here's why it's not going to work. Status quo bias. You think people are just accustomed to doing things. I'm not entirely sure. I think there's a little bit of status quo bias. I think some people genuinely don't like working this way. They prefer to be in the office. They prefer the socialization. Oh. And for them, you know, they want to rationalize why their preferences for their way of doing it is the optimal, productive, long-run way that it's going to be done. 
there's also like an urbanism bias in it a little bit. People like to think that moving to living in, working in a big city is like a very important, positive economic choice. And so there tends to be a little bit of an urban sort of criticism, urbanist criticism of it. All right. We're going to cover all that. But first, let's establish that this is actually happening, which is a little harder than you'd think. I mean, at this point, the data is pretty overwhelmingly clear that since the start of the pandemic, a lot more people have, in fact, worked from home. The difficulty comes with the fact that this is hard to measure. And before the pandemic, you had to kind of piece together different estimates. So I'm just going to look first at the most recent estimate that I've come across that also comes from like a government-run statistical organization. So this comes from the Business Response Survey, and I found it related to me in the Bureau of Labor Statistics publication, the Monthly Labor Review, just a couple of months ago. So according to them right now, 13% of jobs in the U.S. private sector involve people working remotely full-time. 22% involve people working remotely at least some of the time. So you put that together, that's like 35% of jobs are people working remotely, okay? It also found that about 33% of businesses increased remote work for their employees in the time since the pandemic started. It's a little bit harder to find comparisons to how many people in total were working remotely before the pandemic, but you've done some independent work on this as well. So I'm just kind of curious to know how that lines up with the research you've done. Yeah, that's about the right order of magnitude. That particular survey is a survey of businesses versus workers. And so you are going to miss self-employed workers who are disproportionately remote. And so you would have to shade those estimates up a little bit to account for that. Maybe 40%, 45%, something like that. Maybe it's like 15% full-time, 25% part-time, so 40%, maybe something like that. But yeah, right, right order magnitude. Do you think that this was already happening at a significant scale, this trend before the pandemic? I think it was trending up. And the census is probably the best data source for that, showing that it was increasing over time. But I think we were probably at something like 5%, maybe 7% full-time remote. Okay. Whereas now it's almost triple that. Yeah, it's probably like 17% full-time remote, something around that. So a a fairly meaningful acceleration of the trend in the pandemic. Yeah. Okay, cool. In terms of which specific industries in the economy or economic sectors or even individual jobs are most likely to be made remote jobs, what can we say about that? There's a few dimensions to look at it. One is to look at industry. And industry-wise, the the tech industry is is extremely remote. And the other way to look at it is occupation basis because there's industry, which is like, what does your company do? And there's occupation, which is what do you do at your company? And so even in very traditional industries like manufacturing, healthcare, leisure and hospitality, retail, there are occupations that can be done remotely. So, you know, if you work for Walmart, but you work on web development or, you know, e-commerce, like you might be a remote worker for a retail company. So is it better to think about specific tasks versus the industry or even the company that you work for then? To a certain extent, yeah. I think thinking about occupation is going to get you at like at least the ability to be remote. But then what the entire company does also will depend on how many of their workers can go remote. If, you know, 80, 90% have to be in the office, they might bring in the workers who could go remote just to be consistent across everybody. 
you know, in the immediate aftermath of the beginning of the pandemic, I think a lot of companies, including a lot of very big companies, understood the need to go remote. But as vaccines started to get rolled out and as other measures were taken to try to contain the pandemic in some capacity, there was quite a lot of resistance on the part of executives at a number of big institutions, at a number of big companies to say that, hey, this might be a permanent or a semi-permanent trend. They really wanted to get a lot of their workers back into the office as quickly as possible. I noticed this maybe most acutely in the financial sector, right, where a lot of like big bank CEOs were saying, no, we got to get our bankers back into the office and everybody else, our, you know, our traders, everybody got to get them back. Some other companies were maybe a little bit more open-minded about it, but I'm wondering if you were surprised by some of the early reluctance to make a bigger shift, a bigger, perhaps even permanent shift in the direction of remote work, given that so many places had tried it and some of them were successful in trying it. Yeah, on the whole, I mean, the pessimism, both inside and outside of industry, uh, the average level of pessimism surprised me and does still surprise me. Obviously, over time, people are adapting and they're, you know, coming around to it more and more. But part of this is that someone who became the leader of a company based on a particular way of working, you know, they're going to be adept at that style of work. And especially for a lot of management, you know, they are used to a style of management that was very hands-on. The style of management that was pioneered by Hewlett-Packard, it's called management by walking around, right? It's this idea that, you know, I'm going to be physically present, checking in on people, walking around the office, seeing what they're doing. If you rose to be a leader of a company based on that style of management, A, that's what you saw work, and B, that's probably what you're particularly good at. And so when you're facing a disruption that is unfamiliar to you and also maybe suggest that your particular skills, your in-person management skills are less important compared to someone who is capable of managing remotely, which often can take a different set of skills. You can see why someone might reject that and might favor the idea that it's temporary and that their skills, the way they do things, no, this is, this is the way it's always going to be. Because it might not just be the way that executive got promoted. It might have also been the way that executive actually enjoyed working and interacting with colleagues and then getting to that higher rung. But that doesn't mean that that's the only way of doing things, even at those same companies. That's essentially what you're saying here, right? Yeah, there's like the self-interested angle, which is like, I don't want to change things to be a way that I'm not as good at. And then there's the sort of confusion of preference for productivity. Yeah. Okay. For how to make a company work better. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. You've done some of your own research on the effects that working remotely has had on the populations of different sized cities and towns in the United States. And I kind of want to just go through that now to, again, establish what we know about this trend. So take us through like your main findings. How is working remotely in the time since the pandemic starting to affect people flowing into and out of certain cities, moving to different cities? What can we say? So what we've seen is in general, people are moving away from expensive, dense places. Like New York. Like New York, like San Francisco. So they're moving out of those places to less expensive, less dense places. That's the highest level of the trend. And they're doing that in two ways. One, they're moving away from the downtown of those places out to exurbs and even you know rural areas surrounding those places. Exurbs. What are those exactly? Those are like suburbs, but 
closer or farther away from the city than the actual suburbs? Yeah, basically, you have the central city, the core of the metro area. These are large, dense urban areas. Then you have the suburbs. Then you have the exurbs. Then you have rural metro areas, which are rural areas, but they're within the metro area. So they're within like the larger New York or Philadelphia area. And then the farthest out is going to be rural non-metro areas, which are so rural they're not even in a metro area. Okay. So the concentric circle goes city, suburb, exurb, rural metro, rural non-metro. That's right. So basically, we've seen like a move towards within the metro area, which is like a, the wider New York area. We've seen a move out of the dense downtown areas into the cheaper, more spread out parts. And we see that across a variety of cities. And then the other thing that's happening is moving out of the area entirely and farther away to cheaper places. So, you know, moving from north to south, moving from California to Tennessee kind of thing. Is there a way to know if that's being driven partly or even primarily by working from home trends or remote working trends? Or is it being driven possibly by other things like moving to a cheaper place just because it's cheaper or just the ability to be maybe in an area that's perceived to be safer from a pandemic, which I think a lot of people still associate with being more of a risk in a dense city? Right. So the way that I try to tease this out in the work I've done at EIG is we look at the characteristics of the places that have seen population growth increase, and we look at the characteristics of the places that have seen population growth decrease. And what we're sort of looking for is the fingerprint of remote work. Does this look like the places that are winning and losing, does it look like it's being driven by remote work? And what we found is that the major metro areas that had a higher percent of the jobs that could be done remote they saw a bigger decline in population. The more expensive metro areas saw a bigger decline in population. And then when you're talking about like the rural areas that did better, it was ones with a decent amount of amenities. And also in general, we've seen ones that are sort of in the shadow of the bigger cities that are losing places. So altogether, it really paints a picture of big cities where people used to live for access to the labor market and prices had been driven up quite high they don't need access to that labor market anymore. And so now they're moving out of there. And so you really have to look, you know, at a granular level, see what are the kinds of places winning, the kinds of places losing. And to me, it, it looks a lot like remote work as a major driver. And in terms of the jobs that are most easily made remote, we're talking about what, like white collar jobs, desk jobs versus jobs that require a lot of interpersonal interacting with customers or jobs, I would imagine, for example, in warehouses, you know, in, in manufacturing centers, things like that. Right. Warehouses, construction, manufacturing, those are the kinds of jobs that you, you know, they involve you going somewhere and putting your hands on something. Or I would imagine restaurants too, right? Restaurants, yeah. Interfacing directly with customers, producing things directly. Those are the occupations that have gone remote versus those that haven't gone remote. Before we start talking about all of the possible, you know, direct but also tangential effects of working remotely and what it might look like in the future, is there anything else about the trend over the last couple of years that you'd want to emphasize to our listeners before we move on? Yeah, one of the things that's been interesting is to look at what are the expectations of long-run remote work from managers and from workers. And what you've seen is that throughout the pandemic, workers have wanted more remote work 
than managers were expecting to provide. Oh, so there's a mismatch now between those two, maybe even a growing mismatch between what mismatch. workers want and what managers are willing to accept, maybe. Yeah, but the, it's actually converging. So, you know, workers' desires have come down a little bit, but much more significantly, managers are sort of saying over time, okay, well, we're willing to provide more remote work. And you can look at like the share of days that they're planning on their workers being remote. It just has gone up consistently throughout the pandemic. Okay. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of learning about how well it's working, and there's a lot of learning about how much workers value it, and that's causing managers to change their plans gradually over time. I mean, some of that would sound natural. It's a sort of forced experimentation where maybe before managers are thinking that's too risky, nobody else is doing it. I'm not going to be the first one to do it because what if it doesn't work? What if everybody goes remote and it's a disaster? The manager will look bad. But once they're forced to try it and they realize, at least some of them, yeah, it's fine. It works. And there's less sort of pressure coming from inside their organizations because now they're not the first movers. They're not the only ones doing it. That's right. And their processes are adapting to smooth out the problems that they sort of saw early on. What do you mean by that? So, for example, like you might deal with an issue where someone's grabbing too much of your calendar for the week and you find that you're getting bogged down in meetings because it's really easy when you're remote to just toss out an invite. But over time, you start to recalibrate for that. You start to talk to your team and say, look, guys, these are I need to mark off this as part of my calendar. I'm trying to get my work done here. Yeah, these are my, <laughs> this is like my head's down time. Just because the calendar's blank doesn't mean it's like open. You know what I mean? I'm doing my work, yeah. That's right. Or that like, stuff used to drive me nuts, by the way. And there's a million examples of things like that. For example, like you may have been used to sharing a lot of information at your company, you know, at the water cooler informally and learning how to spread information sort of fast and informally over Slack instead or Google Chat or something like that. Those are the kinds of process changes. How do you keep tabs on your workers? How do you stay updated with what they're doing? How do you onboard people? How do you train people? There's a lot of little things that businesses have to change when they start going remote. And there's what economists call learning by doing. It's like you can't figure it out unless you start to do it through experimentation and trial and error. Economists, and I think kindergarten teachers too, right? <laughs> right, very similar. <laughs> also, there's a technology issue here as well, because in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, when everybody was trying to figure out how to work remotely, it's understandable if the technology wasn't ready for it. If you didn't know how to put together a meeting with 10 different locations throughout the world and you start using the technology that you had before and it would be kind of a wreck. But in the first year of the pandemic, didn't we see a ton of investment in the kind of technology that would make this easier, which suggests that this is something that people have a lot more experience with now than they did before? Yeah, we saw investment on a couple of margins. We saw businesses spending more on software and IT capital, stuff like that. And we also saw a lot of more innovation in this kind of technology. So if you look at the number of patents that cite remote work or telework and stuff like that, that surged over the pandemic. So these are like entrepreneurs trying to come up with technology and products that are good for companies to use because they see now that there is elevated demand for exactly that kind of technology. Yeah, that's right. It's a reinforcing process where the market size grows and then technology begins to be created to address that market, which will in turn make the market size grow again. 
So then people say, oh, great, this is this could work. So then more people try to use it. And in response, you keep getting more entrepreneurial activity that helps along the process. My guess is if you could fast forward the clock five years or so and see how businesses are communicating with each other remotely, what the average Zoom presentation looks like, that it will be better in a lot of different ways. Yeah, because <laughs> at the very beginning, at least, I think, people may not have even been using Zoom very much. And they just have to figure out not just the technology, but also the kind of informal way of, you know, interacting with people on technology, right? So like knowing when to mute yourself, when not to mute yourself. There's this sort of memes of, hey, you're still on mute, or you know what I mean? Things like that. People had to figure that stuff out. It was all, you know, new to, to quite a few workers. Yes. And then there's also like not fully taking advantage of the way that working remotely is different. And that you can evolve your meetings to be even better. So, for example, it's not just about like both you are looking at a printed out piece of paper at the same time. You could be looking at a shared Google Doc and editing together while you're talking. And you can be doing a presentation. You can be sharing links. There's the side chats you can do. There's a lot of advantages to remote work meetings. And there's disadvantages too, obviously. But learning how to take advantage of those those extra things that you can do that make a remote meeting different. I recently bought a friend a coffee mug that says, I survived another meeting that should have been an email, right? right. <laughs> and it sort of made me think, well, I wonder if there are fewer of those meetings that should have been emails. And there's just more emails now, precisely because a lot of companies, a lot of managers might have realized they can actually do without those meetings that clog up the calendar. And they realize it because those meetings were harder to put together. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It takes time to, to get the right pattern down, to give everyone feedback, to figure out what's working best. Okay. So having established that this trend really is happening, and I think I'm pretty convinced that there's going to be a lot more remote work well into the future than there was before the pandemic, that some increase and a meaningful increase is here to stay. And I now want to talk about some of the possible long-term implications. Here's where I want to start. You once described working from home as a, quote, general purpose technology. Uh, for people who aren't steeped in economics jargon, tell us what that is and why it's so important that working remotely is a general purpose technology? General purpose technology is a technology with a lot of applications and spillovers beyond uh, you know, minor direct uses. Just the immediate problem it's, it's fixing or exactly. something, right? So it's probably best to explain by example. So electricity would be a general purpose technology. It didn't simply let you replace the candle with the light bulb. Right. It let you power factories that make all kinds of other things, too. It let you power factories and also change the form of factories, right? They didn't just take out all the you know gigantic steam turbines that were powering factories and replace them with gigantic electrical turbines. They changed the way factories work. They started using smaller electrical motors because that was more practical now. That was possible with electrification. And so the entire function and organization of the factory changed over time. Automobiles are another example. Like if you think about how did society change, how did the economy change when automobiles were introduced and then as automobiles gradually had time for society and the economy to adapt. You had widespread changes to where people work, how they live, how businesses worked. Also, in terms of automobiles as a general purpose technology, this is a good example too because it's not just that 
the automobile was invented and that made it easier to get from like one part of town to another, you had a massive economic and societal response that made it easier to accommodate the automobile and make it possible for the automobile to lead to all kinds of other new ways of doing things. So for example, you ended up with the creation of the interstate highway system, which made it easier to get across the entire country. And that also facilitated new ways of communicating and doing things. So it's fascinating to me that a general purpose technology can have that kind of massive effect. Do you think that remote work itself is also potentially you know, something like that? I do. I think that it changes the relationship between where you work and where you live. It allows a business who's really embracing it to hire someone anywhere. And I think that that's a massive change. It means that you're no longer constrained by your local labor market, both as an employer and as an employee. And it also allows you to you know, work around the country and around the globe. How many businesses pre-pandemic were like, we'd love to grow, but we can't in this office market, right? You know, they would spend so much money to buy a new building to grow our square foot. It's like a tax on business growth when your real estate size has to scale. So like that opens up all sorts of new economic activity that couldn't have happened before. And it also, it lends itself to experimentation for organizational forms, entirely remote businesses that are remote from the start, helping connect workers and employers all over the country. Stay on this idea that it could also have a massive effect on businesses and where they relocate and not just on people. Because most of the conversation around remote work is about individuals and workers and the fact that now they can live wherever they want, no matter where their company's based. I think there's a lot less attention given to the idea that it also makes it more flexible for companies themselves, that they don't have to be located in a big city center where the real estate is super expensive. They can now be based anywhere or they can be almost completely decentralized if it is a remote entirely business. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think of like an entrepreneur in Ohio and they're thinking of starting a tech company, how easy is it for them to start that company there versus feeling the pressure that they need to relocate to a city where the talent is? So yes, to Silicon Valley, where it's super expensive to relocate there, but you think you might have to because that's where all the tech workers live. Right. Not anymore. No, now you can start your company in Ohio and hire tech workers in Silicon Valley and all over the country. And so that helps you not just start the business where you are and remove this giant cost to starting your company, which is relocating and buying space in a super expensive city, it also allows you to utilize capital and labor in the place that you're located to the extent that you have activities that need to be done in person. Yeah. So if you think of someone who wanted to start, say, a widget factory in Indiana, right? But now in 2022, you know that you need to sell online and you need to be an e-commerce company and you need to have a big marketing team and web development and all this stuff. You know, you can hire those workers, those skilled workers doing the remote work all over the country. And then you can have your widget factory in Indiana. So if the, you do have the local labor that can provide the local inputs that you need, it helps put them to their highest and best use by allowing you to combine them with skilled labor wherever it is. So it's labor and capital too. So if you think about like, you know, big empty warehouses in these cities, you know, an impediment to putting something new there previously was a lack of entrepreneurial capital and a lack of skilled labor as a complement. And the bar has been lowered there. It's not just the ability to hire people all over the country too. It's 
actually all over the world, right? I mean, some businesses will also find it easier to scale up because they'll be able to hire workers for a lower cost in other countries, right? Like, won't this also make outsourcing a little bit easier? Yeah, I mean, it should help develop a global labor market much more than is the case now. And we already do have something of a global labor market. We already do have trade and digital services. It exists, but it should help that grow a lot. And I think that that's, you know, that's another positive to it. There's got to be some kind of a regulatory response as well, right? I mean, I'm thinking specifically, for example, of telemedicine, where there's a lot of regulations that I think prevent people from, for example, accessing doctors or other healthcare workers abroad over the internet. And it seems like if there is a regulatory response, that could also enable that too. But it's not just about the technology. It's also about the environment in which that technology operates, including the regulatory environment, no? Yeah. I mean, telemedicine is an interesting example because you have a lot of impediments to that cross-state even already. So like for sure, I mean, you might argue the rise of remote work means we need more regulations, but I would say the rise of remote work means we need less and better regulations to allow in those kinds of trades that previously it might have been okay that we don't regulate telemedicine very well because there wasn't that much demand for it. There wasn't that much interest in it. But now the costs of bad regulation there have gone up as the potential for those things to be disruptive and reduce healthcare costs have increased because people are they're more comfortable with doing things remotely now. So I, I think it's certainly a case that we need to take a hard look at telehealth regulations at you know, other regulations that impede remote work both globally and between states. Yeah. I want to talk about the importance of distinguishing between the future of working remotely versus the present of working remotely in the time of a pandemic and the kind of important and unique stressors that that brings. I know this is something where like you've you've been addressing a lot of the critics of remote working along these lines and I guess I'm I'm wondering what your sort of general message is to them about making that distinction and why it's so important. Yeah, I think a lot of people viewed remote work as being something where you're working from the basement and you know you're isolated. And your kids are home from school too cuz schools are closed so they're schools running around in the background you can't get anything done right you can't get anything done you can't get you know babysitters you can't take them to daycare they can't get to schools and you have to work in your basement but like post pandemic it's cramped there's no space cuz you didn't like design your home to right have exactly a place you're to in work. the closet under a blanket trying to <laughs> trying to record a podcast yeah a podcast. <laughs> but like post pandemic you can go out into the world and work remote. You can work at a coffee shop. You can work from a bar if you want. You can work from a library. You don't have to record your remote podcast from the closet. You can go Hey, you can out. go back to studios. Yeah. You can go out to studios. You can go, you know, visit someone in a different city in central Pennsylvania and yeah. record a podcast <laughs> in person with them. Exactly what we're doing right now. Yeah. And over time, people can also move to homes and into homes where they are going to be designing with foresight a home that accommodates working remotely if that's the route they want to take. They can they can say, okay, instead of the extra bedroom or whatever, like we'll turn this into a proper home office and not just some rush job because you were forced into it by the pandemic. You can you can think about it in advance. Right. You know, the infrastructure of society can change, the infrastructure of the economy. And that includes the homes that we live in. And it also includes a lot of other things. If you think about the automobile again as a comparison for a major technological change and how we had to adapt 
in order for it to reach its really true potential. Initially, there were a lot of skeptics of the horseless carriage because they said, well, how is this thing going to work on mud roads? And there are dirt and mud roads everywhere. Like, this isn't going anywhere. Like, And it's can't... new. Nobody knows how to fix it if it breaks. Yeah. Right. There were so many problems that were based on this sort of short-run substitution with the horse. And here's why the horse is superior. The horse isn't going anywhere. And, you know, we built roads. We paved roads. People trained to become mechanics. We got companies that were building cars at mass production and the quality improved. And the idea of like someone in 1912 saying like, what is this thing? This isn't going to matter. Like this doesn't work in our built environment. This doesn't work in our economy. Is today obviously extremely short-sighted, yet I think we see a lot of that with remote work. And the, you know, people living in houses that aren't conducive to remote work right now, you know, that's one example. Yeah, and we're going to talk in a minute about some potential obstacles between the world we're in now and getting to that particular world. But let's stay in that sort of dreamy, ideal future for a second where a lot of people do start working remotely and they do figure out ways of doing it that make sense for them and for their businesses and for society. It seems like it has the potential to change all kinds of other industries indirectly as well. For example, the design industry, the interior design industry, where people are now thinking about how do you design a home, but also the commercial design industry. Because some companies might go to like this hybrid model where you're in the office sometimes, but not other times. But that means you don't have to give everybody, for example, like, I don't know, an assigned desk or whatever. You can design your offices differently. And that brings some pitfalls too, right? There have been experiments along those lines that haven't worked in the past, but if you can get people thinking imaginatively about how to do it, it seems, just as for starters, that the design industry itself will also be changed quite radically. What do you think? Yeah, I think homes are going to be a little bit more like offices and offices are going to be a little bit more like homes. Okay, so that we, sounds terrifying the way you just uh, the way you just described it. Convince me that that's that that's actually kind of a nice a nice future. So in your home, you need more isolated space to do heads down work because like that's the best kind of work. Yeah, like that you deep can thinking do work, work. At, yeah. when you're remote. And so like you need the home office is going to become a lot more important. Or like you know in a smaller house, you might just need a larger bedroom that can accommodate a desk. You also might start to think about spatially separating the loud parts from the quiet parts of your house a little bit more. And it becomes much more important to have a room that's like kind of farther from the living room. Kid-free zone. Kid-free <laughs> zone, yeah. And then if you think about the office, heads down time is going to be less important, right? Because when people need to be like at their desk, alone, concentrating, that's more likely going to be done at home. And the office becomes more of an important space for collaboration, for socialization, for that. And even for fun. If, for if fun, that's, yeah. If that's your thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like there'll be more of a delineation then in this hybrid model where it's like, listen, at home is where we do our concentrating work. But while we're at the office, let's design an office that facilitates enjoyable, productive interactions. Right. If okay. you think that like one of the most important reasons why your company can't be remote is because of the importance of like chance interactions and spillovers. Like running into people, discussing into ideas, people. trading ideas, you know, brainstorming together. Right. Then especially if you're going to be hybrid, meaning you're home some of the time in the office some of the time, then you want that time in the office to be more concentrated in those kinds of spontaneous spillovers in interaction, socialization, that kind of thing. It, it totally changes, you know, the design purpose of the office. Also, possibly neighborhoods. If there are more, for example, 
co-working spaces or coffee shops where people are deciding to work when they work remotely, those places also might be designed a little bit differently. And I think we might already be seeing that in coffee shops, even over the last, just over the last like decade or two, where a lot of coffee shops now aren't just for selling you coffee and sitting down and having a chat or reading the newspaper. They're for like having a coffee, sitting down, opening your laptop, possibly having a business meeting there, but also like just hanging out all day. The design of those kinds of places also might change, right? There's like a short-term practical answer to that. And then there's like a long-term like kind of dreamy version. Oh, let's do the dreamy version. We'll start with the short run. (laughs) All right, fine. We'll build up to it. The short run version is you're going to need more downtown style amenities in suburban neighborhoods. So like the coffee shop is going to be more crucial near neighborhoods now, right? Because like you're home during the day working, some percentage of people are, and you have more like daytime foot traffic because people are in their homes and you need more daytime office amenity type spaces, whether that's co-working spaces or, um, you know, uh, restaurants by residential neighborhoods, coffee shops. So I, I expect to see more near suburban retail, leisure and hospitality stuff mm-hmm. like that. So like suburban areas becoming a little bit more like what urban areas are now. Right. Okay. And the other side of that coin, obviously, is that a lot of downtown areas are going to be losing a lot of their daytime traffic. So they're going to have to evolve too. By the way, quite a lot of that has happened and it has sustained over the last couple of years, which is to say that downtown office centers have lost a ton of foot traffic, a ton of workers that are not going back and that have not yet returned. And the numbers are kind of staggering. You know, there's different ways of measuring this, but it's something like 40 to 50% of the workers have gone back. That's it even now. Yeah. And even if you look at like a city where there's not likely to be a ton of COVID fear, still a city where you might expect there to be a lot of more in-person interactions like, uh, you know, Dallas and Houston, like they're still like 50, 60% uh, occupancy at most. So it's, you know, even when you're looking at like places that are maybe a glimpse into the future, they're still looking like it's not back to normal. I do think that these sorts of downtown areas are going to need to evolve as well. And there needs to be changes in property types, proper usage, industry mix, stuff like that. There's a couple of things to point out here. One is that this could be quite a catastrophe for people who work inside of those dense downtown areas who are losing their jobs because of this trend. And on the other hand, those jobs don't exactly disappear. They're just kind of relocating geographically in a way, which is really hard for individual workers. But in terms of the overall economy, those jobs are just going to reappear, I guess, and emerge in those suburban areas, for example, right? Yeah, in the short run, there's certainly an adjustment cost there. But in the long run, there's a positive here, which is that a growing body of research is arguing that while skilled workers benefit from living in high-cost cities, low-skilled workers actually don't. Their real incomes are lower in the most expensive cities, which is contrary to what economists used to believe. And so in this case, those leisure and hospitality retail workers Moving to lower cost places leaves them with higher real incomes at the end of the day. They are able to, their money goes further, their real wages are higher, and that's a positive. That's fascinating because in a way, it kind of suggests that a lot of those workers who don't have college degrees, who take those lower paying jobs, are sort of trapped in the cities where those jobs do exist, but which are also very expensive cities. And now they'll have the option to take those jobs 
in lower cost of living areas. Is that about right? Yeah, I think if you can take a service job and choose, should it be in a high cost living city or a low cost living city, all else equal, the worker, the evidence is showing is going to be better off in a low cost living city. It's interesting because you said that the house will become more like the office and the office will become more like the house. It sounds like what you're also saying is that urban areas will become a little bit more like suburban areas and suburban areas will become a little bit more like urban areas. I'm not entirely sure what the best use case for the downtown central business district is going to be. I think that directly we should see some conversions of office spaces to residential spaces, especially if you're talking about a city that tends to have like nice amenities like New York City. People want to live in New York City. So if you can't fill the office spaces with people because they want to work from home, then turn the office spaces into people's homes. One of the arguments I've been making about working remotely is that it will become another dimension along which companies compete with each other to hire workers. And the reason I frame it that way is that I don't think every single company will go remote and offer the option for its workers to go remote. But I think that those that do, that find it makes sense for them and that it's appropriate for them, will be able to offer it essentially like companies offer other kinds of perks, right? It's another way that companies can compete and therefore a better way to find the workers that make sense for them, right? That it'll lead to a better matching of worker to the requirements and the skills necessary for a certain job. So like if you're a company that does offer remote, well, you might get more, I don't know, introverts who come work for you. Whereas if you're a company that doesn't want to go remote, then like extroverts might be more attracted to your company. And you can, by the way, position it that way. In either case, you could say this is a place where we have a great office space. We love everybody coming in and we do require it. And people are like, yeah, I love going to the office. I need that structure. And I like the social aspects. Whereas if you're somebody who likes working from home or like deep thinking, you'll think, well, no, I'm going to go to the place. I'm going to go work for the company that offers that option. So better matching. And I'm curious to know if you agree and also what the economic effects of that might be. Better matching, I think, is going to be a huge deal. If you look at why is productivity and pay higher in big cities, one of the drivers of this is better matching. You have thicker labor markets. You have thicker employment markets. Thicker just means like more? More people. More people, yeah, okay. More people. And so you have, as a worker, you have more choices. As an employer, you have more choices. And everybody ends off better in that case. And it's not just a matter of preferences. I do think that is part of it. So people who want to work remote versus don't. But there's also like nicheness of skills and experience. So, you know, if you're in a small town and you're starting a company, a healthcare company, you're looking for a software engineer, you may have to settle for a software engineer who used to work doing the back end for a, a grocery store or something like that, like a web development for a different industry. Versus if you're in a big city, you can find, you know, developers who have and engineers who have specific industry experience, right? Or like have the specific skills that you need, like really good match and want to be working in that particular industry. And so those types of matches are good for productivity and they're good for wage growth. And so I think that workers can be happier sorting into firms that better match their preferences. I think workers can also be more productive sorting into firms that are better matches for their particular skills and experience. I just gave you the optimistic scenario Here's maybe, not I wouldn't say a pessimistic scenario, but one that at least raises a worry of mine, which is that, you know, remote working technology, the fact that more people are trying it, it essentially represents an additional choice for companies, for how they 
organize themselves and for workers, for ways that they can work and for places they can work that are a better fit for them. I guess the question I have is, is more choice necessarily always good? Because we can imagine that at least at the level of the individual company or the individual worker, a lot of people are just going to screw this up. They have more options, but they might choose the wrong option. That can happen a lot. So there's going to be some pitfalls here as well. So I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts as an economist, but also as somebody who studies remote work specifically, are you hopeful that just adding the choice is necessarily going to lead to better outcomes? And what can actual people, individuals, managers, companies do to sort of avoid the possible pitfalls to the extent that there are any? Yeah, it's certainly uh, a possibility, you know, in like the the matching and mechanism design literature, you call it like a congestion problem. You know, you just like a mistake, you choose the wrong, like you don't match better, you choose the wrong thing. You just have like too many applicants, you can't even figure out who to pick, right? Like you, you know, you've got 10,000 people applying for the job. How do you figure out? Oh, oh, so it went from like six people applying for the job to 10,000. And it's like, wait a minute, we're not equipped for this. Or okay. you're an, a worker and you have 10,000 employers to choose from. Right. So there's a long run and a short run way to think about this. In the short run, I think that there's an argument to be made that at least in some parts of the country and in some occupations, workers are suffering from a lack of choice right now of employers, or at least they have been for a while that you've had growing sort of what economists call monopsony power, meaning there's not enough employers to choose from. And so your employers end up having some power over you. Maybe they don't have to pay you the market clearing rate. Um, because you don't have anywhere else, to, anywhere go, else to go to work. Yeah, limited yeah. choices. And yeah. so it's an open debate how much that characterizes the economy overall. But I think it's undeniable that it's, that exists in some places and exists in some occupations. And for those workers the creation of more choice is going to be a huge deal because now they've got you know more bargaining power. They don't just have to say, look, well, this is the company in town that hires programmers, so it's this or nothing, right? So on that margin, I think there's little risk of too much choice, right? They've yeah. got too little choice right now. In the long run, I think a digital remote labor market will evolve institutions that will aid in the kind of matching problems that we're going to have. That might mean something like intermediaries that help workers match to companies and help companies match to workers. It might mean like digital remote labor markets with better algorithmic matching where you have, you know, your entire career sort of uh, think of like something like LinkedIn, but like way more advanced and granular and detailed. And that with algorithms and data, they can help do the matching more or with intermediaries. So I would look at those areas as ways that we can improve matching information, algorithms, and intermediaries. And there's a lot of room for evolution there. And I think if that goes well, we're going to look back at what we did now. Oh, I look- think, oh my God, that was so rudimentary. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wait, you literally look for an employer near where you lived. Why did you do that? Like, that seems crazy. Why am I so short-sighted and limiting? Yeah. Wait, and they looked at a piece of paper and then they you came into the building and they talked to you and that's how they figured it out? Like, <laughs> Right. There's this whole universe out there and you were limited to that. Yeah, we might, it's, it's funny to think that in like 30 years, we might look back on this period of time or even the last, you know, Few, few decades and think, what were we thinking, right? But also, that's the natural order of things, right? Things get better, things improve, we iterate towards a better world. Yeah. And to me, I think there's a lot of potential upside for higher productivity growth, better matching, especially when you look at like 
what describes the most productive parts of the country today? They're the big cities. Why are they productive? Because that's where there's lots of workers and lots of matches. And like, what if we can extend that? Not only extend that, but grow the scale of it. You know, if you think of like New York City with like, you know, a few million people, right? But if we're talking about a digital labor market with 50 million people or across the globe, maybe more, yeah, 250 million people, like the potential for the gains from better matching in a labor market of that size yeah. are, are massive. I have another follow-up about how this could change the environments in which we all live and interact with each other and everything. So going back to the issue of how coffee shops and remote working spaces might evolve as well. Is there anything else about how like our neighborhoods might change in terms of where we see people, how we live day to day, how we spend our time? If we're not waking up every morning, putting on business casual and going into the office? Yeah. I think if you look at the way that cities and places have evolved along with transportation technologies over time, like the shape of our cities, the way our cities look, have been significantly affected by the transportation technology of the day. And in a lot of ways, remote work is a new transportation technology. So I think it's really important to think about how is this going to change the economic geography of where we live and how is it going to change the nature of the places we live in? So what I expect to happen is to see new places that are different. So if you think of how senior community is different from a single family home community. That's example of like an evolution of place, right? Yeah. Like, and what's the evolution of place that will happen from remote work? So you can imagine remote work towns and remote work communities and remote work cities even. Importantly, from a developer's perspective. Designed from the ground up, you From mean. the ground up, built to cater to remote workers. And you can do this because remote work breaks the chicken and egg problem of development, which is, developing in new places, which is like, how can I build houses here for people when there aren't jobs for the people? Right. How can you create jobs for people when the people aren't there? So it's a challenge for making new places, right? You need, you have this chicken and egg problem and remote work breaks that because you can just build the place and then the people can come if they have remote jobs. You don't have to get Google to locate at a place in order to get Google workers there. So I would expect you can look at like places where there really aren't cities, towns, and villages right now. And, you know, we should be looking at that and thinking, can we do Can we do something here from scratch? Like, can we build new places built around remote work, built around the idea that these people aren't going to be hopping in their cars and commuting five days a week? What does this look like? Yeah, I've got a couple of responses to that. Questions, I mean. One is, is it possible that the increased demand for living in places where there is more space that are not dense urban environments where you can still work also lead to a demand for, I don't know, more public investment, perhaps the provision of more public goods, you know, schooling, infrastructure, broadband, that it could be that like we have to wait a little while, but there could be a sort of response of all these people moving to these places could lead to the development of, you know, sort of replicated urban environments, but in a different setting, right? And with all these new things that you're talking about. The second response is, wouldn't that also require kind of like a daring urban designer combined with a daring local politician, combined with daring investors and people to move to a place like this all at once for it to really come together to try that kind of thing? Or is there space for that sort of thing to happen organically? You know what I mean? 
I think we need daring on a lot of parts uh, okay. <laughs> for this to happen, but I think that it will. I, and I, I totally agree. Like if you think about who a remote worker is, remote workers moving to rural places, I think are going to have different, especially if they're coming from like Brooklyn, they're coming from Manhattan, they're going to have different preferences than the existing people in those places. And developers in small cities and towns should be thinking about, you know, how does supply need to change to match that demand? How can you build new communities that provide rural amenities catering to urban high-income professionals? And like I said, it's as different from you know what exists now as the senior community is from like a working-class single-family home neighborhood. Like that's the level of evolution that we need. Yeah. That also leads me to my next question, which is about the potential effects on inequality and equality of going towards a remote work world. And there's a, there's a few different ways to approach this, I think. So let me start with this one. I've seen one particular worry that, for example, if you have a kind of hybrid system where some people can work remotely and some people can stay at home. So you basically give your workers within the same company the option that the people who choose to work remotely will be penalized. They won't be promoted as much. They'll be seen as slackers. And that this kind of punishment will disproportionately fall on women. And that could lead to more gender inequality within the workplace. So let me, let me first start there. What, what do you think about this, uh, this possibility? So there's there's some evidence for the what you call like negative selection into remote work pre-pandemic research from Emma Harrington at Harvard. She looked at call center workers and she found that call center workers who wanted to work remote tended to be they tended to be lower productivity than those who wanted to come into the office. And that of course creates the reputation of the firm that anyone who's selecting into this is going to be low productivity and obviously that's bad for your future, it's bad for promotions. But one of the things that we've seen happen in survey data over the pandemic is the stigma associated with remote work has gone down. And so that negative selection that would make a business previously think maybe, well, oh, geez, they want to be remote. Maybe they don't take this job seriously. Maybe they're going to be low productivity. I think that stigma has declined and that should help reduce that negative selection problem because now a worker saying, I want to be remote doesn't tell you the same kind of thing about them that it would have in 2018, especially if we're talking about 15, 20% of the workforce, especially, you know, the more higher educated, more skilled part of the workforce going remote. I'm, I'm less worried about stigma there. Okay. Especially since we're finding that, you know, in general, productivity has gone up from remote work. And so it's it's not like when you send someone, allow someone to go remote. You have, have, to work. have we found that though, the productivity for remote workers has gone up? Because that sounds like something that's actually hard to measure, right? Like how, how do we how do we know? Is this is this mostly relying on the reports of the companies themselves saying this hasn't been a problem? There's there's three ways to get at it. You can ask workers, do they think they've been more productive? And the evidence there is pretty clear, yes. But you can also ask managers, has working this way been more productive? And in my research, in my surveys, I found that managers are, are more likely to say the productivity has gone up than it's gone down. Okay. And then you can also look at the experimental, quasi-experimental evidence, both pre-pandemic and post. And in general, what you find is an increase in productivity or no effect on productivity and an improvement in like retention 
or job satisfaction, which what some of Nick Bloom's new experimental research Economist Nick finally. Bloom, right. Okay. Uh, I want to stay on the point of inequality for a second. I've been struck by some, I think, still very early research on the effects of socialization in the office and the extent to which a lot of office places still do operate as a kind of old boys network. And what that means essentially is that a lot of the people who are in corporate C-suite jobs, the executives, the higher ups, are still predominantly men. And they tend to hire and promote people who look like them. And part of the reason that happens is because they end up going for drinks after work with other men who are lower down on the hierarchy, right? And then those are the people that end up getting promoted. And so you end up with more gender inequality that way. And that actually there's a chance that remote work could be an equalizing force because there is less of that socialization of the kind that leads to these patterns in the first place. Yeah, I think that's really important that remote work can level the playing field. And I think when people say that they feel like they're less likely to get ahead when they're remote, I think it's a good chance to, as the as the young people say, to, to check your privilege there a little bit. Because what you might be feeling is that you have a more ability to schmooze with management and leadership because you're more like them than your coworkers. And that what you're feeling is the existence of privilege that's bad for, you know, traditionally marginalized groups. And so, like, just because you feel like being not at the office is making you less likely to be promoted doesn't mean that that's actually a bad thing for the office, for the business, and for society at large. Yeah, that that also gets at a kind of intra-office inequality by gender, but also possibly by race and ethnicity. If it turns out to be the case that remote work gets people promoted based on what they actually get done versus some of these other, I guess what you might call softer skills of being very personable and that kind of thing, that also could have a leveling effect. Though here, I, I want to be clear that I, I think we are sort of speculating right now, right? Like this is this is a hard thing to prove at the moment. A lot more work is going to have to be done on it. Sure. We don't know yet. I would just say that I don't think we should be, and I think most people agree with this, satisfied with the status quo. And so when you have this change, it's an opportunity to rethink whether there are certain aspects of the status quo that were, you know, delivering bad results. I think there's a chance to be imaginative about this as well, because resetting to remote work, if you're an individual company, could give you the space to also explore why some persistent inequalities have existed to that point and to do something new about it. Right. If in the past it looked like socializing the right way was getting people promoted, well, now you might be able to say, well, this gives us a chance to see who's actually getting things done. Right. I would understand, though, why some people and not just because they're privileged would be a little bit resistant, which is that a lot of people were brought up to think, well, actually, like the ability to socialize well is really important in the workplace. They may have worked on it themselves. They may have become like you know, what we might call a glue person, you know, somebody who helps others in the office get along really well, somebody who is good at, I don't know, lightening the mood, bringing a little bit of humor to the workplace. And like that also is a good thing. Suddenly that skill set is less relevant because the circumstances have changed, right? So there's a need to adapt 
And the people who are bad at that now have a little bit more of an edge relatively than they did before. And that's okay too. Like that's, they were maybe being unfairly punished, right? But I can understand why those people who were good at socializing are a little bit resistant to the trend. You know what I mean? Sure. And and for some of them, this may require the occupational change, right? Like if you are in an occupation that is going to be for economic reasons, uh, sorted into being fully remote, and you have these highly social skills that, you, that don't translate there, it might mean switching to an occupation where is going to be in person and where the social skills are still rewarded. Maybe you don't have to switch occupations. Maybe you just have to switch firms. But it's not like we're talking about yet 100% remote yeah. economy. And there, that's part of what is a dynamic economy, that there are people switching jobs, moving to different places for new jobs, adapting their skill set for the economy as it evolves as well. Yeah. There's something else that I think is worth digging into about the effects on disparities, which is that the ability to hire remote means the ability to hire all over the country. And it also means the ability to hire people who are traditionally have a difficult time getting into the office, so disabled individuals. So someone who has like a vision disability or hearing disability or um, mobility problems, the nine to five, which we think of as being, you know, previously like, the, the minimum necessity for doing certain occupations might have been inaccessible to them. And so remote work provides opportunity for people who have disability issues and also allows companies to reach people who live in communities that might not have the sort of deep presence of employers and the occupations they want to work in. That's a great point. And by the way, like a standard commute uh, for somebody who's not disabled, right, okay, it's great to save the commute and everything, but it's actually crucial for somebody who is disabled. It's a huge deal. To, to be able to skip the commute and still work on the exact same playing field as everybody else. Exactly. Disabled individuals and also, you know, caretakers, parents. Like yeah. it's a leveling of the playing field. Those things that we think of as being a minor inconvenience to some people to literally keep them out of the labor force. One other question about inequality, and this one has to do with just straightforward income inequality and specifically the kinds of jobs that you're able to do remotely. Those jobs, you know, I think traditionally are jobs that are more high income, jobs where the workers tend to have college educations. Those jobs can be done remotely versus lower paying jobs. For example, you know, service sector jobs, working as a server in a restaurant or working in a factory, those are lower paying jobs. And so if you have the ability to work remotely where there's better matching and productivity at the higher end of the income spectrum, that could at least lead to more income inequality, right? Yeah. So I think it's important to work through all the different ways that this plays out to the economy here. Yeah. Because like the total effect on inequality is going to be really complex. Yes. So that's what I'm trying to get across in this in this exchange, by the way. This is very complicated. So the direct impact, if you think of remote work as a pro-productivity, positive job amenity that's going to disproportionately affect people with more advanced degrees and higher levels of income, no doubt. So they will get that direct benefit. But then you've got to start thinking about the way that these various spillovers affect the economy in terms of inequality. I think an important aspect here is creating job access for people in communities that are sort of economically struggling. And in the long run, this shapes occupational choice, right? So if you are from a you know more rural area that uh, doesn't have a lot of programming jobs, 
and you don't want to leave because that's where your family is, like you're going to not sort into that career. For people who don't want to move to the most expensive superstar cities, it affects and limits their career choices. By letting more people get into those careers, by creating access to them and making that access be more equitable across geography, that's going to be a pro That's a great point. For the very human reason that your family and your friends and your roots are close by, you stay in a certain place. And so you end up selecting into a lower income job, whereas now you can take a higher income job and still stay there. Right. I I think this is a point that gets missed by economists. I think there's a little bit of a professional class issue here, which is that if you are an academic economist, you are sorting into a career where you kind of have to be willing to live anywhere, right? Because like you're going to get go work at the best school that you can get into. And so you have to kind of be like sort of rootless by design. And they tend to be located in, you know, higher income cities across the world. So I think there tends to be sort of like a rootless cosmopolitanism and an urbanism among economists that might make them undervalue attachment to place and not think about that as like a legitimate economic issue. And this leads them to say things like, well, if a place is struggling economically, what we need to do is just let people leave it. Uh, One other question about the international context here, which I think is very interesting Obviously, if you are lucky enough to be in one of those high-income jobs where remote work is a possibility, it's an advantage, but you're also exposing yourself to international competition because now companies, yes, they can hire you no matter where you decide to live, but that also means that they can hire people who live in totally different countries, including in places where they can hire somebody who might do the work for less money. So I'm wondering sort of how that offsets you know, the fact that, yes, it's an advantage that disproportionately goes to high-income workers, but those workers are also maybe facing more competition abroad because if, let's say, you are a barber or you work in a restaurant or you do a job that doesn't offer remote work, that also means that job is harder to replace by somebody who lives abroad. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question, and I do think we're going to see a really significant surge in global trade and remote services. And it's important to think through what does that mean for the economy? What does that mean for workers who have remote jobs or thinking about remote jobs? What I found in my research is I I looked at data from Upwork and which is, you know, already the world's largest digital remote labor market. And what I found was that workers in the US earned a wage premium. That includes when they're hired by companies outside the US. And That might sound surprising at first, but when you think about the U.S. as the world's richest big country, right? We have the most innovation, most skilled workers. And if we don't have a competitive advantage in skilled services, what do we have a competitive advantage in? And would it be pretty surprising for the richest country, richest big country in the world to not have a competitive advantage in something? Like it can't be that we have this level of income and innovation and there's nothing we're really good at. So I think that we should be welcoming global trade and skilled services. And there will be occupations where it used to be done here and it's disproportionately done abroad, but it's a two-way street. And I think that a lot of companies across the world are going to want to have access to skilled U.S. workers. And to make it like more intuitive, let me give you a specific example of why someone might want access to U.S. workers. The U.S. is the largest consumer economy in the world. And it's clear that other companies 
in other countries love to have access to U.S. consumers, right? So they want to sell things here. And to sell things here, you need to know how to speak to U.S. consumers. So that means if you can hire U.S. salespeople, you can hire a US, U.S. marketing companies, yeah, digital marketing, you know, content creation. How do you reach U.S. customers? How do you market your goods to U.S. workers? That's an extremely valuable thing for global companies. And we do find that a lot of the strongest premiums for U.S. workers were in those sort of like marketing and creative areas. Fascinating. So in other words, it's not just that U.S. workers face competition from workers abroad, but also companies based abroad can now hire more U.S. workers. And so it could have these kind of offsetting effects. And if anything, it seems like the advantage still skews to the U.S.-based worker then. Yeah, it's it's a two trade is a two way street. Yeah, and in the worst case scenario, say we do find that U.S. workers have, are at like a competitive disadvantage in skilled services, and a trade gap opens up in skilled services. What does that mean for trade goods? Right, it means the trade gap should balance out, which just means more demand for goods, which by itself should also be reducing inequality and increasing demand for workers in the goods sector. So, it's hard for me to get that worried about this. Is it going to be harder to train young people? This is a complaint that I see a lot of, which is that a young person, a new person at a job, doesn't already know all the people who are their colleagues, their new colleagues. They're going to have more trouble sort of integrating themselves into the company if everybody's remote versus if you can go to the office, meet everybody, have coffee with them, be in the meetings, and so on. Yeah, how how does that work in terms of training and just bringing on board new people? Yeah, it's certainly one of the biggest pain points that I hear as well from businesses, uh, you know, training people, onboarding them, incorporating them into the corporate culture. So there's two ways that can play out. Simply one would be that companies make their younger workers come to the office for a while and remote work at those companies is something that more senior people do. And maybe some senior people are paid more to come into the office to help train them. So that could happen. Or I guess the whole company could just stay in the office, right? And the economic rewards to being in person are so high and the training costs and the training problems are so disruptive that it's just like, look, sorry guys, remote work doesn't work at this company. Certainly we'll see some of that, right? I mean, the whole economy is not going to be remote. So that might be one of the things that keeps some companies, some industries from going remote. The other thing that I think we'll see some of is that companies adapt their processes again. And it's hard to onboard people remotely when your onboarding processes were built for an in-person world. And so how do we adapt this? Part of this, I think, is moving from spoken and oral traditions to more written forms of knowledge sharing. And I think that there's probably positive spillovers here too. So like when you go to a company and you're new there, it's like, where do I find out about this? It's like, well, go talk to them. They're over there. Go walk over there. Someone over there will know. Like, walk over there, talk to these people. And you got to kind of bounce around the office asking people, hey, does anyone know where this server is? Or like, where do I find this file? Or who's the keeper of this piece of information? And it's like, it can be incredibly informal, right? And very like casual. And on the one hand, you might say, that's the necessary way that this has to happen. So therefore, this work can, can't can be done remotely. 
On the other hand, you might say, well, Jesus, this is an opportunity to improve a pretty sloppy process. And so let's formalize the knowledge at this company more. Let's move from a PowerPoint culture to a written culture. Let's try to get the knowledge that we have. Let's share it in specific places where we store this information. Oh, you want to know where this knowledge is? Well, here's like the shared drive where we keep all this information. Here's the librarian who organizes where all this information exists. So it's just like an evolution of processes. And I think that if we're talking about areas where there may be suboptimal status quo, I think this is another example where, yes, some companies will find the old way, they've got to stick with it, they can't adapt. And some companies will find, well, geez, there were a lot of problems with the old way. Last question. A lot of your writing and research on this topic has been aimed at combating pessimism. And I guess I'm wondering what you see as the biggest reason that people tend to greet the shift to remote work with so much pessimism. And what's your response, philosophically even, as an economist, what's your response for why there is so much ground for hope, which I think has been part of your message? Yeah, I would say, like, look to history, look to examples of general purpose technologies and how they have been disruptive. They have caused problems. There have been companies and industries that were rocked by them. And there were people with specializations and occupations that were you know, left behind. But initially, initially, and on the whole, like they've been massive sources of progress and the kind of thing that you wouldn't even consider unwinding or having a debate about whether it's a net positive or negative. And so once you file this in that area, I think it changes your bigger picture thinking about it. Once you start to see it as a general purpose technology, you start to see the frictions as things to be innovated around or evolved around. And you start to think, how what will the long run solution to this be? And you look at learning by doing and innovation and changes in management structure and businesses, corporations, industry. Like those are not hurdles that are going to block this. Those are the evolution of the economy responding to a new general purpose technology to a higher level of you know, economic output and well-being. Adam Ozemek, may you continue to thrive remotely. <laughs> Thanks for being on The New Bazaar. Thanks, Cardiff. And that's our show for this week. You can find links to Adam's research on remote work in the show notes for this episode. And special thanks also for this episode to Triforce Studios in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer. And our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>